Welcome to Two Guys, One Book, where two friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Okay, welcome to Two Guys, One Book. Tim here. Along with Brian. Hello. Hey, Brian. Um, So this week we finally finished The Laws of Human Nature. This has been a slog. Yes. Brian is very upset with me for choosing this book. But we're finally through it. Yes, finally. So how does it feel? Do you need to get some emotions out of your system? Um, what was this, like 600 pages almost? Mm-hmm. Probably the longest book I've ever read. Ooh, congrats. Me Thank too, you. probably. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. You haven't read like... What what books are longer? Like Atlas Shrugged is Grapes. Longer? I haven't read that. Grapes of Wrath? Grapes of Wrath is pretty no. long. It's long. It's not that. It's not 600 pages. Harry Potter books. We never read the Harry Potter books, have we? I read the first four. First four? Yeah. But they progressively get bigger, too, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think I don't think you've gotten to the 600-page books yet but right. in the first four. I don't know. I'm not a Potterhead. A Potterhead. Yeah, but anyway, so this was, this was a nightmare. Oh, my God. Um, because, like, I felt like I wasn't making a dent. And it wasn't like, all right, some people say a 600-page book. But they say it might be an easy read. This is not an easy read. It's not Would a you hard say? read. Like the, it's not like he uses all this like lofty language and big words. It's not hard in that sense. Right. No. But it doesn't have like a good flow to it. I would right. Say. Not at all. Yeah. Um. Do Do we want to go through? Do you want to give a summary of the book? Um. I figured we could just kind of name each of the laws, but. Sure. Before we go into that, maybe give a little background on sure. why I picked it and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Tim, why did you pick this book? Thanks for asking, Brian. <laughs> I'm so glad. Uh, yeah. So I've read other books by Robert Greene. He did like the laws of, or no, he did the 48 laws of power and mastery. Um, he's done the 33 strategies of war, a couple others. Have you read all of those? I've read uh, 48 laws of power and mastery. Okay. Yeah. And they were, I thought they were good. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got some interesting insights i think he's a good writer he draws from a lot of historical examples like he comes across as very well read mm-hmm. and uh sort of synthesizes ideas from a wide range of sources what's his background um you know i mean I, he's been a writer for a long yeah, time yeah. i've listened to interviews with him and like he talks about having a bunch of different jobs um mm-hmm. he worked in hollywood for a while mm-hmm. so i think he sort of saw a lot of the power struggles there mm-hmm. and got to got a lot of his material from those sure. experiences but, um, yeah, with this book, he's he kind of repeats himself from some of his earlier works. Um, and uh, so, in that sense, I was disappointed. And even within the book, he repeats himself a lot. Yeah. Uh, you could have probably cut 20 or 30% oh, of this God. book out because he'll just say the same thing yep. in a slightly different way over and over. Right. Um, that's not to say there aren't good lessons in here. Right. I think there are valuable things we both took away. Yep. Um, but reading this book actually made me appreciate Malcolm Gladwell. A oh, more. oh <laughs> I know yes. you're happy to hear that. Oh my goodness! I, I I was honestly thinking that as I was reading this, I'm like, T- I I knew you liked Robert Greene, mm-hmm. and so I was happy to read this book to kind of get because I haven't read Robert Greene at all. So I was excited to to get a taste of what he's like. I read this book, I'm like, why did Tim not like Malcolm Gladwell so much? Because I okay. felt like Robert Greene is. Like a more wordy Malcolm Gladwell. Well, uh, okay. So my feeling is 
I still think Malcolm Gladwell is kind of an armchair psychologist. Oh. Is how I would consider him. Okay. But he's a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. So I give him credit in that regard. Direct with his telling of tales. He's just like, this happened, and that right? happened, and this is the lesson yeah. that you should take away. Malcolm Gladwell kind of leads you along this like journey that he weaves together. Mm-hmm. So, Yes. Malcolm Gladwell is... I think you hit the nail right on the head. Much better at telling the story aspect of things and then weaving it into a lesson to be learned from the story. Whereas Robert Greene, just each chapter, he started out telling a story from a historical figure or something that happened in history. And then that would be the first half of the chapter. And then the second half of the chapter would be his analysis of that person's situation or that time period and how to... apply that to our lives and what strategies to use to capitalize on the weaknesses of others and it just was like that was the part that was a drag like the story i'm like yeah he was more direct in his story so he's not as good of a storyteller but i still felt like he picked good examples for his laws of human nature so that I was the first half of the chapter was easy read because I, I felt like okay this happened and this happened and this happened and but then the second half of each chapter was kind of like a bear, and then, like you said, he repeats himself over and over again. Mm-hmm. The thing that bothers me, too, is that a lot of his lessons are surrounded by this Machiavellian context, where it's like people are trying to undercut you at every turn, right. and you need to overcome them. He yeah. just has a very cynical view of human nature. Oh, I absolutely. <laughs> I completely 100% agree. I felt like, and I do not at all. And um, I like giving people the benefit of the doubt and, and having hope in, in the humanity of, uh, you know, other people. And it felt like Robert Greene's aspect is that, like, exactly like we said, Machiavellian in the aspect of everyone has ulterior motives. Don't trust what they say on face value. You got to dig deep. You got to analyze their personality. You got to reach back. You got to imagine how they were as a child and how they, they were probably scorned by their parents or something and and like and then you gotta like overcome that and 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 eviscerate your opponent i I think he's still stuck in that 48 laws of power (laughs) where he's like that's what kind of propelled him to fame Mm -hmm. and he's still trying to teach those lessons in a different way but it's the same a lot of the same material um that being said there are still lessons we took away i think for like you know relationships Friends, mm-hmm. family, work. Mm-hmm. Um, Very heavy on the work, I think, aspect yeah. of it. Which I think is understandable because that is where we experience uh, the most like hierarchical, you know, boss and subordinates type of relationship. I mean, sure, you can say that in your family, too. And he talks a lot about like early, early childhood and how much that can mess you up. So Yeah, I mean... Little experiences we might not even think about can like have a big effect on mm-hmm. how we process things later on. So we not we might not even be conscious of those things, right? And and other people the same way. Right. So, yeah. And I agree with that. And I and I and I I've been always been one to think that yes, a newborn to like, you know, some people may think like a newborn doesn't really have a concept of the world or whatever. But I would just say that like that is you know. You're, they're very impressionable children, and even newborns. And I, so, like, I, I don't know. Part of me is like, well, shit. I mean, when I have a kid, I'm just gonna mess them up. 
You know, that, that's my impression, impression from reading this book is that like... You're not, not going to try to. No, no, I'm it's not going to try happen. to. No, 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 yeah. It's, it's, it's no matter what you do, you're going to mess your kid up in some way. Like, if you're too coddling, then they're going to expect everything to be handed to them in the in the future. Or if you're kind of standoffish and want them to be independent, they're, then they're going to be, like, have this sense of that nothing they do is ever good enough. You know, like, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, so, like, it makes me kind of scared to have kids, but... <laughs> <laughs> this is going down a deeper yeah. rabbit hole Brian's personal life. No, okay, so I think the general theme, though, is that people are fundamentally irrational, which is an extension of like Daniel Kahneman, mm -hmm. um, to some extent Malcolm Gladwell, a lot of the like leading uh, writers in this area. Right. So, like and behavioral economics. And, yeah, and Dan Ariely, Dan Gilbert. Yeah. There's a few others who Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. But yes, that people are irrational but they and so they behave in a certain way because of their emotions and then they try to attach some meaning to their behavior when in re reality they are completely off base. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that. And like you said, yes, there are very, you know, um, many good, you know, I think thoughts and, and uh, laws of human nature in this book, yes. But I think he misses the mark more than he hits. So before um, we go into the laws and what we liked and disliked, yeah. what do you think he could have done differently to make this a better book? Wow. Um, I don't know. Keep it shorter? Because, like, <laughs> I mean, like you said, he was repetitive in, in, in several different chapters. And, and I don't know. Maybe I just felt like I just felt like he missed the mark for me. Because, like, I just am not, I am not an overly ambitious person. I am not, you know, aggressive or assertive in, 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 by nature. Um, so I felt like a lot of these don't pertain to me and then it just loses my interest. Yeah. I think just to go off that, he could have done a better job of connecting to his audience. Mm -hmm. Um, aside from that, he, like we said, we liked all of the different, um, examples he used, which he does a good job of reaching across history and kind of showing how human nature is constant across time but at the same time it's a little scattered as well and it's like he'll be in like you know imperial china at one point and then like ancient greece and then modern day hollywood or something just like mm -hmm. really all over the place so it felt a little scattered to me um well you, you know. see i i kind of liked that so because so he wouldn't focus on any particular time or place and i felt like he genuinely like, like, I don't know. I felt like that was okay. I felt like he developed the laws of human nature first and then wanted to, then did research to find the best example to illustrate the laws that he wanted to uh, highlight. You know what I mean? Yeah. So do you feel like he should have done like chronologically then or like, because like I feel like, I don't, I don't know what order these are. If he had a specific order for these. I don't really know how he decided to structure it. Mm -hmm. It just, in general, felt like he tried to fit so much in this book. And I mm -hmm. think he takes, like, you know, seven years or something between each book. So he's really biding his time. But I'm wondering if he could just try a different approach and sort of veer off from this pattern he's been doing for a while. And just maybe release a smaller book sooner mm -hmm. and get feedback from it and, you know 
go from there. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I... Uh... Like, I just think this would be more powerful if he cut out 20% focused <laughs> yeah. on the best stuff. Right. And then, you know, a lot more people would read it and mm-hmm. benefit from it mm-hmm. rather than, like, I don't know really anyone reading this book right now. I don't see it getting much publicity. Right. I mean, because it it's a recent release, like, just yeah. last October, November, something like that. Pretty recently. And was it on bestseller lists? I don't even know. I don't know. Yeah. But... I think his last book, Mastery, was more accessible and easier to draw lessons from. Mm-hmm. But this one just it's a it's a bit of a slog to get through. Yeah. Um but do you want to go through the laws and then sure. do quotes and stuff? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so there's eighteen. Mm-hmm. I'll read the first nine, you read the, the second nine. Okay. How about that? Okay. So just to split it up. Sure. Okay, so <clears throat> the first one is master your emotional self, the law of irrationality. Two, transform self-love into empathy, the law of narcissism. Three, see through people's masks, the law of role-playing. Four, determine the strength of people's character, the law of compulsive behavior. Five, is to become an elusive object of desire, the law of covetousness. (laughs) Covetousness. I got it. Uh, Six, elevate your perspective, the law of short-sightedness. Seven, Soften people's resistance by confirming their self-opinion, the law of defensiveness. Eight, change your circumstances by changing your attitude, the law of self-sabotage. Nine, confront your dark side, the law of repression. Brian, want to do 10 through 18? Oh, yeah. 10, beware the fragile ego, the law of envy. 11, know your limits, the law of grandiosity. 12, reconnect to the masculine or feminine within you, the law of gender rigidity. 13. Advance with a sense of purpose. The law of aimlessness. 14. Resist the downward pull of the group. The law of conformity. 15. Make them want to follow you. The law of fickleness. 16. See the hostility behind the friendly facade. The law of aggression. 17. Seize the historical moment. The law of generational myopia. 18. Meditate on our common mortality. The law of death denial. I bet you like that last one. You love death stuff. <laughs> Ryan's I, always I, talking about death. I do love death. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Um, death is the void which gives life meaning. Oh, my God. Come on, Tim. What philosopher did you yeah. get that from? No, I mean, I, philosopher <laughs> Brian, man. Jesus. But, like, some of these just, like, I felt like some of them did not jive. You know okay, I, mean? I can tell you some of my favorite ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you have a favorite chapter and least favorite chapter? Well, I just wrote down a few of my favorites. So I enjoyed the one on envy, grandiosity, oh. gender rigidity, and generational myopia. Those are the four I enjoyed. Okay. The most, yeah. I like the generational myopia one too. Mm-hmm. Not so much for the, uh, what was the story? Louis Louis Sixteenth was that story? For the generational, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, and the French Revolution. Um, but I liked it more for the second half of that chapter, actually. Well, why don't we go into it? Since we're um, yeah, right now? Yeah. That chapter? Go ahead. Um, well, I mean, it just talked... Generational myopia, I guess, is about, like, getting caught up in this, the, the times uh, and, like, the social movements and, and all that stuff and the French Revolution and how, like... What do they call that with all the people sent to the guillotine? Uh, the Reign of Terror? The Reign of Terror. Is that it? Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. All right. Boom. Dropping some knowledge on me. But yeah, so like how the French people got caught up in like 
these quick trials and sending people to the guillotine and, and killing a lot of the French aristocracy of the times that they overturned and how to kind of like how then he also talked about the the what is that the the four generations uh kind of pattern he says uh the great 14th century islamic scholar ibn khaldun was first formulated this idea into the theory that history seems to move in four acts corresponding to four generations like the first generation is that the revolutionaries who make a radical break with the past, establishing new values, but also creating some chaos in the struggle to do so. The second generation that craves some order. They are still feeling the heat of the revolution itself, having lived through it at a very early age, but they want to stabilize the world. And the third generation, having little disconnect to the founders of the revolution, feel less passionate about it, and they are pragmatists. And the fourth generation feels that society has lost its vitality, but they are not sure what should replace it. They begin to question the values they have inherited, some becoming quite cynical. And I think he tried to explain like which were which in like baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, and that I forget what he said, but I don't know. I just find that that pattern kind of interesting, mm-hmm. um, and how, you know, yeah. Why? Why do you find it interesting? Why do I find it interesting? Because I think it's true. I think that the four generational pattern is is accurate in it. when you look at like the the characteristics of the last you know hundred years, um, and I'm very curious to see how that plays out. So it kind of gives me hope for the future, because I feel like you know we had the greatest generation in World War Two, and then the baby boomers, and that kind of settled down after the war and then Gen X were kind of like lost and then now millennials are kind of like trying to reclaim the world and and shape it in the image that they want which I think is cool and I think that millennials getting older is a great thing not just because I am a millennial you know and and that's the thing throughout this whole book he talked about how people always think that they are the rational ones Mm -hmm. And that the other people that they disagree with are acting crazy. And he hit the nail on the head with that one, too, because that is the sign of the times that we live in, is that people are in their own little bubbles, and they are not, you know, very open to ideas from out of their bubble. And I feel like this generational myopia chapter is probably my favorite one for that analyzation, the analysis Analyzation. I know. Sure. <laughs> the analysis of our um, kind of pattern of generations that I think is going to continue to improve the world, I think. Well, it's a very millennial thing to say, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim, I got some quotes about you, all right, all too. Right. We'll get to that. No. So I was less caught up in like his dividing the stages into mm-hmm. generations. Mm-hmm. I just think the general point is a good one, which is... Like, we are millennials, so we probably see a lot of things in that bubble or that perspective. So you have to sort of consider your perspective in the broader timeline of history Mm -hmm. and how each generation, its views are shaped by the conditions that people find themselves in. So I think it just helps to have a, a longer historical perspective and understanding objectively why our generation kind of thinks the way it does. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. 
So what were some of your other ones? Favorite ones? Uh, you liked Envy? Envy, yeah. I think that was one of my least favorite ones. Really? So why did you connect with that chapter? So, okay. I think the reason I connected to it is because, like, we all feel envy, I think, whether we admit it or not. And, um, you know, some people more than others, depending on our circumstances, that sort of thing. But, um, like, I thought this was a good piece of advice. He says, tell suspected enviers some good news about yourself, a promotion, a new and exciting love interest, a book contract. You will notice a very quick expression of disappointment. Their tone of voice as they congratulate you will betray some tension and strain. Equally, tell them some misfortune of yours and notice the uncontrollable micro-expression of joy in your pain, what is commonly known as schadenfreude. <laughs> their <laughs> eyes light up for a fleeting second. People who are envious cannot help feeling some glee when they hear of the bad luck of those they envy. Ooh. So, okay, Tim, so do you feel like people are envious of you, or are you envious of other people? I mean, in throughout my life, I mean... I'm not saying I can think of a lot of examples, but I've felt envy before, and mm -hmm. I, and I feel like people have been disappointed hearing something good happen to me. I think because it it makes it reflects badly on them. Maybe is how they internalize it. Okay. I've in the past like told someone good news, like oh I got this job or blah blah blah, uh -huh. and then it's like they don't react in a way like well good for you type of thing. It's more like uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know, okay, so you have been scorned by envious reactions in the past. I mean, I don't. Scorn is a strong word, but mm. I feel like the fleeting moment of uh, disappointment that something good happened to me—I've mm -hmm. seen that, and I and I felt envy before too. Mm -hmm. Seeing like someone I know, like oh, they're making like six figures, and I don't know if they deserve it, type thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess that's very interesting because like. I guess I've been lucky. I mean, I definitely feel envy. I mean, we all do. But I don't feel like I've... Maybe I just don't share a lot with my, about myself with other people. But <laughs> <laughs> so I don't put myself out there to, like, to people that I don't particularly like or something. I don't know. You know, um, no. So I just, I just felt like that didn't really apply much to me in my life. I didn't connect to that chapter, which is interesting, which is fine that you did. I think that's the whole point. I think, yeah, regardless of whether this book is, I mean, this book is not easy to read, but there is something in it for everyone. Mm -hmm. I will say that. And you like grandiosity too? Okay, so <clears throat> I connected to grandiosity, I think, because it's easy to get caught up in thinking like, the way you're doing something is the best way to do it. At least, uh, I mean, like... As a software engineer, well, no, I mean, to, The way I code is the way you should always okay. code. Not everyone is raised to your Mennonite humility. <laughs> 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 okay, we all okay. Yeah, our yeah. way is the best Touché. way. Touche. Touche, Tim. So, just... I think being grandiose blinds us to our flaws and our shortcomings, that sort of thing. But, like, as Americans in general, I think a lot of us are grandiose, thinking, like, oh, we can solve any problem, we can, we know all the answers, that sort of thing. It's, it pays to be objective and hum and humble in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. I agree with that. It does pay to be humble. Well, I think I liked, like I said, general my generational myopia. Of course, I like the last one about death denial. Um, 
I'm trying to think. Like, some of these I didn't quite think the... Like, just the t title of the chapter, I don't think jived. Like, um... What was this? Make them want to... Chapter 15. Make them want to follow you. The law of fickleness. So, like, it's... You, you make them want to follow you so that... The law is fickleness in other people. So you learn to harness the fickleness to make them follow you? Because, like... I think it's just, like, understand that people are naturally fickle. Okay. So learn how you can get them to follow you. Right. I did like that story about Queen Elizabeth I. What was it? What it was basically it? about how she was a young queen, and she went out in, like, the ceremony, the parade, mm -hmm. and, like, she wasn't, like, up on a carriage, you know, um, away from the people. She walked amongst the crowd, shook hands, talked to the, her, you know, fellow countrymen. And then the way she governed, too, like, the men in the parliament was were trying to, like, get her to marry and then then the guy would take over and we would be much more secure but she was a great strategist as well mm -hmm. you know uh, with um the defeating the spanish armada making them come into the north sea and fight up there with their english ships that were smaller and quicker and could handle the rough seas mm -hmm. so i have a lot more respect for queen elizabeth the first i mean i didn't i am not up on my european history mm -hmm. so it was a learning experience. Um, and I also liked the law of... Did you say gender rigidity? Mm -hmm. That was a good one, too. I like that um, story. I got it here. Katerina Forza? Fiorza or something? Forza, yeah. It's a good Italian woman. Yeah, in 1400s. born in 1463. That was an interesting story. What about her? Well, like how she was... her. Father raised her and taught her how to fence and ride and horse ride horseback and mm -hmm. and hunt and things like that. So when she was and taught her how to govern people, and so she married somebody else from another Italian town who was like a duke or the equivalent of whatever, and he kind of died or something. Then she had to take over, and she popped out like ten babies or something, and then still hit was you know bossing guys around and, and very she was very good at playing the game of like she was holed up in the fortress and then taken prisoner or something or it was just a more entertaining story so the point I think was that she could be play the feminine role and right. like seduce people when she mm -hmm. wanted to but she could also be like a fierce strategic military person right thanks to her being raised in such a way by her father right yeah and it's a good point like we both like, everyone has, like, masculine, feminine aspects mm -hmm. to their personality. So, like, whichever um, whichever side we kind of lean towards, we can benefit by going in the other direction a little bit. And I think when we choose, like, partners and relationships and stuff, we probably, like, end up finding someone who compliments us. But he also suggests that it's good to just, like, develop that in yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, which I completely agree with and, and appreciate the fact that, you know, roles and tasks that are done by men and women do not have to be exclusively masculine or feminine you know and that that women can do things men can do and men can do things that women can do we could probably be more masculine is what i took away from this <laughs> <laughs> chapter <laughs> he's calling me out yeah so. <laughs> well no i did find it interesting that's like some of the things he said about um you know, 
the group dynamic. The masculine was one way, the feminine was another. I'm like, I'm definitely geared more towards the feminine, like harmony and and uh, collaboration instead of competitiveness and, and like, you know, getting a leg up on your uh, opponents. Yeah, but like like he says, there's benefits to both mm-hmm. personalities, but it's good to be able to go between them depending on like right. what situation right. you find yourself in. Yeah. Did you have a least favorite chapter? Yeah. Well, most of them just didn't stick with me, I guess, is the, the takeaway. Like, right. it's interesting, like, which stories we end up remembering. Mm-hmm. Like, you kind of veered towards the more historical ones. Right. One that I remember is, like, uh, Shackleton, towards the beginning, he's, like, this Arctic explorer who's leading a bunch of men, and he's got to keep the morale up because they're trying to, like, escape Antarctica after they got strand- stranded or something during an exploration. So, like, he talks about, like, how... He could tell one of his, like, crew was tired from rowing a boat or something, but instead of calling him out, he'd just be like, oh, like, I think it's time for a break or something, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's a way for keeping the the group cohesion together without, like, calling this guy out and focusing on him. Mm-hmm. Um, just having that kind of social awareness is a good trait. Right. Yeah, that is. And Coco Chanel, I thought was, her story was interesting because, mm-hmm. like, it was like something about her fashion didn't appeal to the European um, style, but she got a lot of Americans mm-hmm. interested because she had like more like masculine, um, like a wardrobe or something. Yeah. But um, it was something about like evolving with the times, mm-hmm. like that. Right. Yeah. Right. That was so. good. I do have to admit that I found myself like analyzing my coworkers. While reading this book, like their angles or mm-hmm. okay, how so? Well, like they so, all listen to this podcast, by the way. <laughs> so be careful. So be careful what I say. <laughs> I won't name names, but I mean, when when certain people will react a certain way when a contractor or sub consultant or somebody does something, it you know it. I, I'm thinking of like, oh well, this person is you know, just acting out in their emotional response. They are not, you know, having much control over some of their reactions at times or, you know, if something might irk me, but I'm pretty good at shrugging things off anyway. But I guess when something might irk me, I realize that like, oh, you know, it's not that big a deal. But that's normally my my MO anyway. So need yeah. more masculine uh, responses, Brian, <laughs> to embrace conflict. Or aggressive, aggressive responses. Yeah. <laughs> the whole, that whole chapter is about Rockefeller. You remember that? Oh yeah. That was. He's he's intense. Yeah. Right. He basically wanted a monopoly, so he would just like find these crazy ways to like shut down these other mm-hmm. companies and people. Right. Right. So like at to that extent, Rockefeller was one story. Which another one I found interesting was that Martin Luther King Jr. story about it was under the law of aimlessness. Mm. I found at first I found that interesting because like I don't I wouldn't think Martin Luther King Jr. is someone that was aimless. Well, that's the whole point is that he's, right. even, he has a even grand Martin Luther King Jr. with such a big purpose felt aimless at times. Right? Is it you think that was I thought the he, what we I thought he told the story so that he said, like, have a higher purpose like Martin Luther King Jr. so that you don't become aimless. Oh. Is how I interpreted uh-huh. it. Well, I hate to break it to you, Tim, 
You're not Martin Luther King Jr. I, no one else. I mean, like, that's just it. Like, at times, sure, you know, like, you always want to have lofty goals and aspirations in life. But at times, like, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Rockefeller, they are some, like, one-of-a-kind people. That he, Queen Elizabeth the first. I mean, like, he's comparing, so he's giving us anecdotes of people that are once in a life, like, like, will never be duplicated. So, my perspective at times is that that seems a little overwhelming. To, like, I'm not going to change the world. I am going to do my best to contribute to society and be a good person and maybe help out in my local community. But I'm not going to change the world. So, I mean... And I'm okay with that. Well, if you just set your sights higher, Brian, <laughs> like Martin Luther King Jr. Right, right. Well, the chapter is advanced with a sense of purpose. And I think the general point is just like Martin Luther King had this big purpose. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of guided him through a lot of his life situations. And we can benefit from that kind of thing. Not saying we have to accomplish all the things that someone like that did. Sure. But just like, I mean, like. I mean, you can probably relate to this. Like, there are times in your life where you feel aimless. You don't know what direction mm-hmm. you're going in. And, like, a lot of guys in, like, their early 20s or something trying to figure out their lives. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think we've all been there to some degree. Oh, like, sure. I'm not saying we haven't been there. But I feel like... I mean, that that chapter kind of reminded me of City Slickers. Have you, you've never seen City Slickers, have you? I feel like this isn't the first time you brought up City Slickers. Not. I love City Slickers. I don't care. <laughs> but, like, they talk about... The Billy Crystal is lives in New York City and he goes out west to go do on do a cattle ranch, a, uh, a cattle drive for one weekend. And so the, Curly, the old cowboy, says, you know, the meaning of life is one thing. And Billy Crystal asks him, well, what is that? He's like, it's up to you to figure that out. And I genuinely believe that that people find uh, de- derive meaning in their life any way they can or what's best for them. So. And then that's part of my existential attitude as well, is that, you know, we inherently have no meaning, so we try to find that meaning throughout our life. But, like, having, feeling like everything you're doing is going towards some higher purpose is, I think, more motivating to getting through hard challenges. And I guess, I guess I look at that and, and say that sometimes you may not know what that higher purpose is. And I think that, and I'm like, and I want to say that that is okay to some extent. Like, like, I don't know. It is extremely overwhelming to feel that way because I've been there before. Feeling like I didn't have any bigger picture that I'm working towards. That I was kind of just in a rut going through the motions of the day-to-day life, not accomplishing anything, not, not improving myself as a human. Uh, I have since gotten myself out of that rut, but at times I feel like that is maybe a good thing to go through. And so, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where I'm going with this thought, but to be aimless is not to be lost, if that makes sense. I don't know. It's pretty Zen Buddhist stuff. Yeah, (laughs) but I like that because like, because eventually, 
you just got I think you got to find help sometimes and you got to get through it but when if, if you do get through it when you get through it you're going to have a better perspective on everything yeah I mean I think we all have aimless periods in our right. life that we're trying to find right. ourselves or whatever and I wouldn't even say that sometimes aimlessness is necessarily that uh, dangerous or empty because like I feel like sometimes college years can be a little aimless like like or maybe maybe not aimless but like I know when I was going through college my I was just going through college to get a degree I didn't really have a master plan of like a career and where I'm gonna live and and settle down or all this stuff you know I was just kind of going to college doing my classes to get good grades so I could graduate so I didn't have I mean so I guess Having a higher purpose or um, an, an aim to shoot for is can vary to temporary, to permanent, and anywhere in between. Well, I don't think Martin Luther King had like in his twenty, like early twenties, had this master vision of what he was going to do. So I think the point is like, yeah, you need to take some time to figure that out. But once you do, it can be a good way to center your life or what your mm-hmm. actions are. So I guess. Even if you don't have some grand master plan, still work towards something. Yeah, that's a good takeaway. I like that. I do. Still, I like my... <laughs> Just because you're aimless doesn't mean you're lost. Not all who wander are lost. There you go. Oh, I thought I, thought I was on to something good. Slightly rephrasing just... a classic Damn quote. <laughs> Damn it. All right, should we do other quotes? Yeah, sure. Can, should I go through and do the quotes that I made me dislike this book? And, you're, I'll, and then you're I'll, gonna do all the quotes you don't like. No, 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 not all the quotes. I'm just okay. gonna do some quotes that I hi- highlighted because I didn't like this. Yeah, quote. go for it. This is in the introduction. This is before chapter one. Yeah. This is the quote. Often these types will hit us with elaborate cover stories to justify their actions or blame handy scapegoats. They know how to confuse us and draw us into a drama they control. He's just talking about other people manipulating us, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like. So then this is about a colleague out for themselves. But I would argue that some people are oblivious to the drama that they create. You know, he, he makes it sound like this person is a mastermind sucking you into their drama. <laughs> but, I, I mean, I think that there are some people out there that are completely oblivious that all the drama in their life is their own doing. Yeah. And so I just, I don't know. Well, I don't think everyone creating drama necessarily has this like Machiavellian bend right. to it. They're just, that's their personality. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, like neither of us have probably been in a lot of situations where like mm-hmm. we're struggling for power in like a right. crazy situation. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think so. You think like people in like stockbrokers and other high stress, high, high powerful uh, positions would like this book more? I've, I think that's the audience. This is more intended for. All right, here's another one. Second, we must be honest about our own nature and not deny it. We are all narcissists. In a conversation, we are all champion at the bit to talk, to tell our story, to give our opinion. That's not me at all. <laughs> I never talk about myself. Well, I, I mean, never. I talk about my... But, like, I'm not... In some conversation with somebody else, I'm not saying... I'm not, like, thinking in my head, oh, I can't wait to tell them about yeah. my parallel experience. I think neither of us like the spotlight that no, much. No, yeah. So like, on our podcast that we <laughs> on our self-indulgent <laughs> podcast that we, yeah so 
I like this advice. Since you're giving the back uh, quotes, I'll give one good one. Okay. Uh, he says, accept people as facts. Interactions with people are the major source of emotional turmoil, but it doesn't have to be this way. The problem is that we are continually judging people, wishing they were something that they are not. We want to change them. We want them to act and think in a certain way, most often the way we think and act. And because this isn't possible, because everyone is different, we get continually frustrated and upset. So people are as they are. Yeah. And we went on to be like us. Yeah. I feel like I can connect to that quote. Like, really? do you get frustrated with people sometimes? Oh, and, yeah, of course. I mean, everyone does, I right? Mean, yeah. Yeah, but instead of, he's just saying, like, this is natural, people are going to frustrate you, but it's not good or bad, it just is what it is, and you need to do your best to right. deal with that. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and he was talking about work in chapter 13 the law of aimlessness of course <laughs> your favorite one yeah I mean I actually didn't mind that one but then yeah. like he talks about um, work and he says like how Steve Jobs and Einstein just hold up in their room and then thought of these great ideas I'm like that's not applicable to me I'm like I'm not gonna just magically come up with you know uh, yeah I'm, I'm Steve Jobs and Einstein I can think of you know amazing things in my room <laughs> If you just stayed in your room more yeah, often. Yeah, right? And he also says this. Look at this as a form of religious devotion to your life's work. Such devotion will eventually yield moments of union with the work itself and a type of ecstasy that is impossible to verbalize until you have experienced it. Well, I ain't experiencing that through my work anytime <laughs> soon, I can tell you that. And here's another one. All right. Of course, it is always wise to impress bosses with your efficiency and to make them dependent on your usefulness. But be careful of taking this too far. If they feel you are too good at what you do, they may come to fear their dependence on you and wonder about your ambition. Make them feel comfortable in the superior superiority they believe they possess. So he's basically telling you to step one, suck up to your boss. And step two, do good work, but not too good of work where your boss is suspicious of your uh, ulterior motives. Right? Okay, so so all right. So tell me, all right. Think think about this in the context of like some shows people might be familiar with. Like, I've been watching Mad Men, but oh, you God. probably watch like House of Cards. Nope. You've seen that. You haven't seen that. Nope. Okay, you haven't seen Game of Thrones. Nope. Well, you just have an aversion to power struggle <laughs> <laughs> television. <laughs> so, so I see. So naturally, I just avoid this thing from my. From my Mennonite upbringing, I am at such I have such an adverse reaction to any sort of conflict that I just avoid all sort shows and and everything that has to do with conflict and power struggle. There's a pattern. Wow, man! <laughs> wow, Tim, you should be a therapist, man. <laughs> okay, but I'm saying these these tips make more sense in that context. Like in, in, think about it. In your job, you're the only person who does what you do at you at your specific like location yes. at your company. So yeah. like, you don't really stand to benefit from some kind of power game. It's all just. But that's not to say like some of these dynamics aren't um, relative to you. If all of a sudden you start getting more attention than your boss for things you did, then he might sort of take that the wrong way, whether you're aware of that or not. I mean, it's kind of a natural human thing. I guess so in some situations, but I don't know, man. I mean, this, it is just, all right, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'll give you the fact that 
this book is geared to people not like me. There you go. <laughs> we'll All right, can I shit on it some yeah, more? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and this, this is from the chapter, The Law of Conformity. Resist the downward pull of the group. And that was about, like, China. That was a pretty crazy story. I didn't like that story. No, I didn't like it at all. <laughs> but, all right. Keep in mind that there is no way to opt out of this court dynamic. Trying to act superior to all the political games or the need to flatter will only make you look suspicious to others. Nobody likes the holier-than-thou attitude. All you'll get for your honesty is to be marginalized. Better to be the consummate courtier and find some pleasure in the game of court strategy. That's lame. Well, like he's basically saying that everyone's playing a game and you have to play because nobody likes a snob that says that they're better than the game. Right? Yeah, and I will say that's pretty much straight out of the 48 Laws of Power. Oh, he's, is it really? He's like, one of the um, laws is like, play the perfect courtier or something. Uh, so he's almost verbatim, like, taking that material. So how did you feel about that? Like, I don't think the advice is bad in the sense that, like, consider, uh, I don't know, like, the ancient court or whatever. You're trying to, like, um, please you're trying to get along with everyone around you. Like, we saw The Favorite, that movie, mm, right? Yeah. So, like, it's like you want to somehow... How do you, ba like, make that balance of, like, pleasing the king and the royalty and the queen while not offending the subjects on your level or below you? I know that seems like a weird connection, but, mm -hmm. like, at your current job, how do you manage to please your boss without making your coworkers feel jealous or upset at you? I mean, I think it's... There's something in there. Okay. I mean, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta remove myself from this. I am. I am too wrapped up in what. You're we're... being irrational, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am a, trying to apply this book to my life, and it is not. It's a square peg in a round hole. Tim. Law of aggression chapter. That was a good one for me. Mm. Yeah. Alright. You're very aggressive. Oh, God, I know. <laughs> so th this was... Alright. Even if they are your boss and you must surrender in the present, you can maintain your inner independence and plot for the day in which they make a mistake and are weakened using your knowledge of their vulnerable points to help take them down. What if you yeah. like your boss? Well, yeah. He's been reading too many, like, war books yeah. and, like, <laughs> Art of War type stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's just... Oh. Well, he's very negative. So he's, I mean, he's a very successful writer. Like, yeah, sure. In in the past, but fun. but like, to what extent do his life lessons connect to his material, and to what extent mm. can we apply them to our lives? Yeah, that's in question. Right. All right. So this will be my last. Hold on. Let me see. Okay. Yeah. This will be my last. My last bad quote. Okay. Um, this is in the Law of Aggression chapter again. In any event, in trying to appear unambitious, you are just as self-absorbed as anyone else. Being so humble and saintly is your ambition, and you want to make a display of it. Now, maybe I don't like that because it hits a little too close to home. <laughs> are you, is that right, Dr. Tim? What, you think you're too self-absorbed? No, I am, <laughs> I, am, I am humble and saintly because I am above this ambitious, aggressive, 
you know, dog-eat-dog um, mentality of the world, which has just led us to shit. Yeah. He assumes everyone has this kind of mentality. Yeah. And if you don't think you do, you just can't admit it to yourself. Right. That's what I don't look by. Um, yeah. Because, like, because that's basically... That's basically what I just read is his blanket statement saying... If you don't agree with this law of human nature, then you are secretly in denial. <laughs> or he would argue if he were listening to this podcast that we're just saying this so people don't think we're out for like power and ambition and that sort oh. of thing. We're playing a a persona. Oh. <laughs> well, all the all the world's a stage, Tim. Okay. You're you're gonna take credit for that quote. <laughs> Shakespeare. No, I'm not. Nice. All right, this connects to that. Okay. All right. He says, if we displayed exactly who we are and spoke spoke our minds truthfully, we would offend almost everyone and reveal qualities that are best concealed. Having a persona playing a role well actually protects us from people looking too closely at us with all the insecurities that would churn up. In fact, the better you play your role, the more power you will accrue, and with power you will have the freedom to express more of your Peculiarities. Peculiarities? Peculiar. Peculiarities? Peculiar. Oh my god. Peculiar? 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 Oh my god. This is so hard. I'm going to edit so much of this out. Peculiar. Peculiarities. That's close. Peculiar. Okay, so to talk about that. Your um, peculiarities? No. He's just saying like... Like you said, uh, all the world's a stage. To some extent, mm -hmm. we're all kind of masking our inner thoughts. Sure. I mean, I would... I would. <sighs> if we said everything on our minds... Oh, absolutely. We'd piss people off. I completely agree. Yeah. But that's the thing is, it's not... And like, I think maybe... I think maybe too many people uh, take their gut initial in reactions to things as, oh my gosh, I'm a bad person. Whereas I look at it like, your gut reaction is just kind of like what he's saying in this book is kind of unavoidable. You have emotions to respond to things and you can't help it. But you cannot, but you have impulse control to mask those because you know that. So, like, I look at it like we react to things or we have thoughts or to certain situations in everyday life that we know are not polite. Do you think Robert Greene is saying that that is our true nature and that we are all putting on a mask? That's how I interpret it. You see, I see like that as kind of our subconscious trying to bubble out. And I don't really view our subconscious as, or at least I don't view my personal subconscious reactions as like who I really am. Who I am is my rational interpretations of those, of, of controlling my subconscious, knowing that I think certain things, like, I don't know. If I'm on a high balcony on a, in a hotel or something, I look down and I imagine, like, jumping. I'm not going to jump. But, like, I have that instinct, that, that, that little, not instinct, just that fleeting moment of, like, 
what it would be like to just free fall from here. It would be terrifying. And so I don't do it. But, like, that's that's just one extreme example. But, like, yeah. So, like, if some coworker we don't like says something and we want to just call him an idiot, we don't do that. We understand that we just don't care for that person. But we are going to try to make the working relationship work as best it can. So I don't see where you disagree with his... Yeah, I don't know either. I guess <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is that like... Right, so that's a good point. Maybe I don't disagree with him. I just kind of frame it in a different way. Where he has the laws of human nature and those are what we truly are. And then, but I, so he, he's talking about like a mask or something. And I talking about like my sane, rational mind controlling my subconscious. I guess to me, it just feels like semantics at that point. Yeah, you're right. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that (laughs) diatribe. Yeah. But, um. I mean, we can all agree we both think things that we shouldn't say to people. Right. And whether you call that your subconscious or just say it's part of yourself. I don't know if there's a See, thing. I don't like that phrasing, that that wording of part of myself. That's not who I am. You know, like... Maybe you're just in denial, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, I don't... Because I never act on those uh, inappropriate impulses. All right. You got another quote? And, well, it's it connects to that. Okay. Uh, so he says, Stress or tension can reveal flaws in people that they have carefully concealed from view. It is often wise to observe people in such moments precisely as a way to judge their true character. So I think that's kind of good advice because, like they say, traveling with someone or living with someone mm-hmm. is a good way to get to know like a partner before you sure. become more serious romantically yeah. because we like to put on our best character and face uh, in those situations, but like at a certain point we're going to get stressed out about one thing or the other. Mm-hmm. So it's really when you face a stressful situation that you see the true character of someone come out, I right. think. Right. Yeah. You know, I got some good quotes that I like. Okay. And this, and this is a little similar along that vein. What you need is a complete acceptance of your character, including your flaws, which you can see clearly, but even appreciate and love. You are not perfect. You are not an angel. You have the same nature as others. With this attitude, you can laugh at yourself and let slights wash over you. From a position of genuine inner strength and resilience, you can more easily direct your attention outward. That's good advice. Yeah, I think so. And so that's just it. Like I, yeah, I mean, I find good nuggets in this book. You've you've got all the negative parts out. So I did. You can yes. focus on yes. this. <laughs> that's what I figured. I'll I'll start with the negative. Yeah. And with the positive. Well, Robert Greene stopped listening at this point. He's, <laughs> he's too hurt. Okay. This is probably my favorite advice from the book. He says, yeah. um, you must consider character as a primary value when it comes to choosing a person to work for or with or an intimate partner. This means giving it more value than their charm, intelligence, or reputation. The ability to observe people's character as seen in their actions and patterns is an absolutely critical skill it can help you avoid precisely these those kinds of decisions that can spell years of misery like choosing an incompetent leader shady partner scheming assistant um incompatible spouse who could poison your life 
but if you're good at reading people and understanding them, then you won't. Right. And I think I think that I think that I am very uh, lucky and um, fortunate. I'm very fortunate to have a good working environment because I think that's why this book is not very applicable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's this one that I liked. Um, what was this book? This was chapter nine, The Law of Repression. And he said this little bit. There are genuine saints out there, but they do not feel the need to publicize their deeds or grab power. And my, my little thing is like, that's right, we don't. Oh my God. <laughs> Brian earlier today was like, oh, I just had Habitat for Humanity. I'm just like <laughs> such a great person. <laughs> But I did like, I mean, he did mention about how much we are affected in our very early years as children. And I, I agree with that. And, and I feel like this quote is a good one. In the end, what we want is to fuse the curiosity and excitement we had toward the world as children when almost everything seemed enchanting with our adult intelligence. And I think that's, I think that's one problem that, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a parent. But I would like to be someday. And I feel like I will... I'm good with my cousins and, like, little kids. Because, like, I feel like I can appreciate their worldview. And I think part of that is because I'm the youngest grandchildren, grandchild on, like, both my mom and... Almost both my mom and dad's sides. So that I've always been the youngest of, all, like, not just my siblings, but all my first cousins and all that stuff. So I know what it's like to be young and look up to older people. So then I can appreciate that and want and give that back to little kids. Yeah, there's one part where he talked about like children are really the best at reading people mm. because they don't have these. I guess they're not self-absorbed like adults are. Right. We're kind of all in our own worlds. Like Brian is now just reading his <laughs> quotes, <laughs> trying to find his all next right, quote. I got three quotes left. <laughs> can I finish my thought? What? Can I finish my thought? Oh, you weren't done. I was saying adults can be self-absorbed. <laughs> Like my friend Brian here, but children, on the other hand, mm -hmm. they can see through people because their focus is kind of turned outward. Like he talks about, they can sense if like someone is strange or seems off. Right. They kind of have that sense more attuned. Well, yeah, because I think they are still observing and learning what the world is like, right? Yeah. As adults, we have this naive con uh, conception that we know what the world is like. We're kind of going through the motions, right? Assuming we know, yeah, how it's working. Yeah. Absolutely, and yeah. and children are still observing how things are done. How do we talk to each other, and, and how do how to? Because you hear children ask questions like, "Why do you do that?" And they're and like, like and "Well, it kind of like <laughs> why do we do?" It kind of throws you off. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Okay. So I got a quote on anger and two quotes on death. Okay. I want, and then do you have any more quotes? I have one more. Okay, cool. Let me. I can do all three of mine, and then. Sure. All right. On anger, right? What makes anger toxic is the degree to which it is disconnected from reality. People channel their natural frustrations into anger at some vague enemy or scapegoat, conjured up and spread by demagogues. They imagine grand conspiracies behind simple inescapable realities, such as taxes or globalism or the changes that are part of all historical periods. They believe that certain forces in the world are to blame for their lack of success or power instead of their own impatience and lack of effort there is no thought behind their anger and so it leads nowhere or it becomes destructive 
So he's taking a jab at Trump supporters there. Right? It's pretty clear. All right, let me ask you that. How many quotes, how many parts of this book did you did you find applicable to Trump? In terms of, in terms of which way? I found like... Like critical or... Six, six observations, I found like five or six observations that Robert Greene uh, wrote in this book that I felt exactly pertained to Trump. Pertain in the sense that of his saying, of his character that he his persona that he puts on on the TV and his candidate Trump and how he got elected president. Okay, you want me to read one or two? Or? If if you got one, yeah. Yeah, let me find it. All right, this is this is I felt like a direct stab at Trump in the chapter of the law of grandiosity. Um, I will deliver you. These types often rise to power in times of trouble and crisis. Their self-confidence is comforting to the public or to shareholders. They will be the ones to deliver the people from the many problems they are facing. In order to pull this off, their promises have to be large yet vague. By being large, they can inspire dreams. By being vague, nobody can hold the person to account if they don't come to pass, since there are no specifics to get a hold of. The more grandiose the promises and visions of the future, the more grandiose the faith they will inspire. The message must be simple to digest, reducible to a slogan, and promising something large that stirs the emotions. As part of this strategy, these types require convenient scapegoats, often the elites or outsiders, to tighten the group identification and to stir the emotions even further. The mo movement around the leader begins to crystallize around hatred of these scapegoats, who begin to stand for every bit of pain and injustice each person in the crowd has ever experienced. The leader's promise to bring these invented enemies down increases the leader's power exponentially. Yeah, that seems pretty direct. <laughs> right? And I read that and I was like, good lord, that explains Trump. Well, it's funny he can be so critical in that paragraph, but at the same time, you look at Trump and he's playing along with a lot of these like laws of human nature, laws of power that helped him kind of a rise to the presidency, mm -hmm. rise to the presidency. Mm -hmm. So, although, and Robert Greene said he's like a Democrat in interviews before, so I think he sees things through that frame of mind, but, um, yeah. Do you think he added certain things to this book because of those very stark and divided political times we are in right now? I think... Yeah, I think those paragraphs are pretty clear that they connect to Trump mm -hmm. and the whole phenomenon. But yeah. at the same time, I would say there are aspects of Trump that I think a lot of us underestimated, right. and especially his ability to read human nature in like groups of people and to amass a following by saying, by thinking like this is how I can get people behind me, by doing just as that mm -hmm. paragraph was saying, like reducing things to a simple slogan, mm -hmm. finding right. scapegoats, right, and just <laughs> yeah. So, all right. All right. So this will be my last quote. And okay. You can do it. All right. There is much in life we cannot control with death as the ultimate example of this. We will experience illness and physical pain. We will go through separations with people. We will face failures from our own mistakes and the nasty malevolent, malevolent, damn it. Machiavelli? No, ma ma malevolence. malevolence? <laughs> Peculiarities. Mal malevolence. Mal malevolence. Yes, the nasty malevolence of our fellow humans. And our task is to accept these moments and even embrace them. Not for the pain, but for the opportunities to learn and strengthen ourselves. 
In doing so, we affirm life itself, accepting all of its possibilities. And at the core of this is our complete acceptance of death. So this is just talking about how pain and suffering in life is unavoidable. Mm -hmm. We must accept that. And when we do accept that, we will have a, an appreciation for the good times. And that's existentialism right there. So, and stoicism. So, like, I mean, that's right up my alley. <laughs> so, yes, I did like the last chapter about death. Yeah. Yeah, you're all about mortality. Yeah, and, I am. Well, yeah, death, the whole idea is that the more you think about death, the more it helps you frame your ideas. Right. And it, it helps you align what really matters in your life mm -hmm. and what you want to get emo you what you want to get um passionate about mm -hmm. do you want to get passionate and worked up over that comment your coworker made that you've heard of, overheard or which you can't control is this the coworker that you hate no no no, no. i don't hate any of my coworkers for the record i do not hate any of my coworkers in the cincinnati office <laughs> okay final quote you ready mm-hmm so this will connect back to your favorite chapter, the one on envy. <laughs> he says, he uh, suggests to people, okay, so first he prefaces this by saying, if people like to gossip a lot, uh, partic particularly among common acquaintances, then they probably gossip about you too. And Ooh. it's frequently a cover for envy, a convenient way to vent it by sharing malicious rumors and stories when others talk about when they talk about others behind their backs, you will see their eyes light up and their voice become animated. It gives them a joy comparable to schadenfreude, <laughs> as I mentioned before. Yeah. You know, you've heard that before, right? Yeah. The German phrase. Just schadenfreude? Am I saying that wrong? I have no idea. Okay, I'm I probably sure. am. Well, it's basically like joy at someone's... Right, suffering. Misery, yeah, yeah. suffering. Um, okay, so he says, instead we should practice mitafreude. Ooh, <laughs> which is the experience of pleasure in the uh, okay, just the opposite of Schadenfreude. Yeah, yeah. So um, when something good, okay. So instead of just congratulating someone on their good fortune, uh, you should instead try to feel their joy as a form mm -hmm. of empathy, even though it's a little unnatural at first, and our first instinct might to be jealous, might be to feel envy we can train ourselves to feel their happiness in ourselves. And, um, and I think that's just like a good piece of advice. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like that. Yes, definitely. To, to not just, not just like say, Oh, good for you. But actually and put ourselves in their shoes and feel the joy that they are feeling. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah. Mitafreud. Yeah, Mitafreud. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think that's a, that's a good lesson for us all to have to, to, to just, yeah, share in our common humanity's good, I don't know. And in a book that's always talking about getting the upper hand on people right. and, you know, taking down your boss to attain power, yeah. we can we can focus on this positive piece of advice, which is, just when someone's happy, right. be happy for them. Yeah. Imagine you're experiencing the happiness yourself, that right. sort of thing. I right. think that's great advice. It is. That's a good one to end on.
Yes. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Better than my death quote. <laughs> you always yeah. on a death quote. We're all going to die, people. <laughs> anyway, so what would you give this book? Out of five stars. Three out of five. Three out of five. Yeah. All right. You're going to give it two? I'm giving it a two. Okay. Yep. Fair enough. I mean, I'm giving it a two because I did not like it, <laughs> but there were valuable things in this book. 